Right. Okay. And I think the other three did not sneak in on me. Okay. So we have a few things coming up. Actually, a quiet, quiet stretch for this course, at least. We have a homework assignment, though, that is due on Friday. That's on the chapter that will, the chapters that we'll be covering, coming up here in a few minutes. We're almost done with chapter three. It'll be on chapters four through eight, which is the same as your quiz. So actually, the homework and the quiz are all concentrated on that set of chapters that we're going to be going through. Probably, hopefully, get through it today. Maybe be done with it Thursday. We're going to kind of zoom through the planets and talk about them real quickly in a week. And then, because we're, we're slightly behind, we're not doing too bad. We're slightly a hair behind, not too bad. The exam, I've gone ahead and scheduled the second exam, which is chapter three, what we're, which we're just about finished up. The section on the planets we're doing this week, and then the chapter on the sun that we'll do the following week. So I have it scheduled right now for the 28th of February. Barring a snowstorm that cancels days or throws us too far behind, you know, we've been lucky so far this semester, but that's tentatively scheduled. I sort of want to get it in before the end of break, so if I can do it the 28th, at least that way, you don't, don't have an exam hanging over you all of break. At least you've, you've either did well on it, did horrible on it, but at least you did and you know and it's done. So you don't have it sitting there wondering, the whole, wondering for all of break. So I'm going to try to get that in there and set before that. And then, as we did last month, if you've got solar observations, I'm asking you to turn those in. So make sure you're getting started on that, and then I can take a look at them. And say, I don't know what the scarier thing is, putting up the second exam, or that we've already got dates into March on there. So, so that'll be due the 2nd of March. Now, the 2nd of March is a Friday. So if you're going to hand in a paper copy, you want to turn those in in class, will be March 1st, which would be the Thursday. Or you can, of course, email them to me then, and then I'll look at them and have things back for you after, after break. Questions? Yes, sir? Um, for exam two, yes. Where it says four through eight, does that mean chapters four and eight? No. It means chapters four, five, six, seven, and eight. Okay. But when I say chapters four, five, six, seven, and eight, don't go read them all. Okay. You don't need to. I'm, I have the slides that I'm going to use. That's what you want to look at. And they are, they're from the book. But I don't cover all of it. There are big, big chunks of it I leave out. I mean, we can tell you there's the Astronomy 103 course covers the planets, you know, does this section and then covers the planets in detail for the rest of the class. So we could spend a week on each planet. We're not going to do that. We're going to go through all of them, just give you a real brief overview, and then get on to the rest of the universe. So yes, it is chapters four through eight, but I write it this way specifically, meaning that a third of the exam is chapter three, a third of the exam is chapter nine, a third of the exam is chapters four through eight. So even though it's five chapters, it's equally weighted in with everything else. And again, you don't need to read all, all five. You can skim through them, look for the sections that, I'm, that I've given you. Anything else? No? Okay. Picture of the day for today. The Rosette Nebula. So appropriate for Valentine's Day. Uh, this is a nebula out in space that glows a very deep red thanks to the hydrogen that makes it up, and this group of very young stars that is, ex that is exciting the gas. So it, the stars emit a lot of ultraviolet radiation. That excites the hydrogen within the nebula. And as you recall, we talked about a week or two ago how hydrogen tends to glow in the red portion of the spectrum. So when we see this red glow, we are often seeing emission from hydrogen. And in this case, the nebula actually gives you almost a pattern of a rose there, so I think that's why they happened to pick it for Valentine's Day. 
It's again a site of star formation, so where stars are currently forming and what the stars have done in here, and we'll come back to this again right after break, but the stars would have formed in an area that was very dense, had a lot of this gas and dust in it. As they form and as they you know, emerge out of that cocoon, they emit a lot of ultraviolet radiation, but they also put a lot of pressure, a lot of radiation pressure out, and they push away the material. And you can sort of see how the central area, which would be the center of the rose, is getting cleared out by these stars. These star, this has been happening over millions of years. Millions of years longer, it will, it will continue. So not over our sort of time frames that we're used to, but over much longer time frames. When we talk tens of millions and hundreds of millions of years, the nebula will disappear. It will slowly dissipate and be pushed off into space and start forming new stars. So there will be parts of this that would actually form new stars and new clusters and new nebulae would actually appear as the older ones go. Again, not on our kind of time frame. So in our class time, lifetime, we're never going to see a change. It's going to look just like this now and if you come back and look at it 50 years from now, it's going to look exactly the same. It's a very, very slow process. But it is slowly changing. If we could come back in a million years, we would be able to see things that things had changed significantly. So, pretty rose for Valentine's Day. Other questions? Questions? Otherwise, we can go and finish up finish up telescopes. We were, at the, we were at the very end of this chapter. I just couldn't quite make it through. And we'd been looking, in fact, I'm going to go back one more slide. We'd looked at X-ray telescopes. We'd gone through different wavelengths and kind of breezing through these real quick just to give you an idea of what astronomers use. X-rays and gamma rays, we need different methods. All of the other ones, optical telescopes, I told you about reflection and refraction. And that's how they worked. And it was the same type of mirror that you could use for that. They worked for infrared telescopes, radio telescopes, um, ultraviolet telescopes. They all did the same thing. It was all the same procedure. When we get to x-rays and gamma rays, we need to do different things. And in fact, x-rays won't bounce off a mirror. You, know, you can't just bounce x-rays off a surface and come back. They won't do it. X-rays will focus if you send them at a very, very low angle. So if you just kind of graze them off the surface of the mirror, they will bounce and you can actually focus them. So you can use what they have as cylindrical mirrors here, a set of cylinders that slowly focuses those x-rays to a detector down to a detector down here that would be able to detect it. So you could actually focus x-rays and get a reasonably nice image from it. It's much more difficult. You can't you have to make the first of all the surfaces would have to be extremely extremely particular. You couldn't have too many little defects in them because the wavelength of the x-rays is so small. And you know, the high energy of the x-rays, you've got to just barely glance them off the surface to get them to actually focus. But you can focus them. But it's different, different method than we were using when we talked about any of the other ones. Everything else was, if you ignore the refraction in the optical telescopes, it was pretty much just reflecting them off a big curved mirror. We did that with radio telescopes, big satellite dish. Optical telescopes, big mirror. Infrared, ultraviolet used the same kind of thing. X-rays had to be a little bit, have to be a little bit different just because of the amount of energy that they have. Oh, yeah. Aren't gamma rays very dangerous? Can't, don't they like scramble your, your uh... gamma rays are very high, very high energy, higher energy than X-rays. So what, what do they, what do they do with gamma rays? They do the same. There's detectors for them, but they're not detecting them on Earth. 
Remember, gamma rays, don't, they don't get through the atmosphere. So they're out in space. I'm thinking of the Hulk. Oh, the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Yes. Like gamma radiation, and you get mad, and you turn green. So. <laughs> yeah. No, I know, I know what you mean. But they, and they are. They can, they can cause a lot of damage. You know, x-rays can cause a lot of damage if you get intense numbers. I mean, they're real good in a small quantity. But in larger quantities, then they're not. I mean, they can cause significant amount of damage to you. But the convenient thing is that they're detecting them. They're not looking here. You know, it's an x-ray telescope. You're not putting your eye there. You know, so you're not, it wouldn't do you much good to look at it because your eye wouldn't even detect them. Not only would it be dangerous, but your eye wouldn't see them. It's not sensitive to x-rays. But you could put a detector there that would detect them. And again, all this, and I should have emphasized, you know, the optical and the radio were done on Earth. Everything else is done in space. So ultraviolet telescopes are all out in space. X-ray telescopes have to be in satellites above the atmosphere. Because our atmosphere shields us, fortunately, for the reasons you mentioned, it shields us from all the X-rays from space and all the gamma rays from space, so we don't actually see them. Now some objects that shine very bright in X-rays are objects that are very energetic, very hot. And one example is, this is a supernova remnant called Cassiopeia A. Actually named for its radio name. Cassiopeia is the constellation it was found in. Cassiopeia A simply means it was the brightest radio source found in that constellation. So that's how it got its name, but this is actually an X-ray image of the same object. And you see the intensities. Again, colors are not what you'd see. Colors are intensities. So how much X-ray radiation is coming from the different parts of it. And a supernova is actually an exploded star. So these are the outer layers of the star that are expanding very quickly out into space and, move, and moving through space. And they've been shocked by this incredible explosion that occurred when this star blew up and emit a lot of energy. X-ray supernova remnants are one of the objects that emit a lot of X-rays. So anything that's very energetic and the explosion of a star will be something that will, that will do that. And this was an example I showed you at the end of class last time. Again, it's Cassiopeia A. It's a supernova remnant, a star that exploded. These are all the outer layers of the star that we're seeing. So all this gas that you're seeing now spread across space was part of a star at one point. Part of a star much bigger than the sun. A star like the sun doesn't do this, won't explode. It's not big enough. It's not going to go on, it's not big enough to become unstable. It'll produce a different kind of nebula that we'll look at later. So that's sort of, a, that's an example of a supernova remnant. A supernova remnant. And I, I was trying to think of that off, and I could not think of it off the top of my head. It's been usually within the last couple thousand years. Most of them are. Yeah? Um, is that little white dot in the middle of it, is that what's left over? That could be. That's likely what is left over in a supernova. It would be, and we'll come back to these, it's called, it would be called a neutron star. Very compact object, about the size of a city, you know, size of New York City, but has the mass of the sun. Yes, sir. An explosion like this, the actual supernova explosion, is one of the few things in astronomy we can watch. So you can actually, when a star explodes, we never know when it's going to. That's the hard part. But once you see it, you can actually watch it get brighter and watch it fade off over a few months. So that's one of the few things in astronomy you can actually see. Most things I tell you about, you know, I say this is still expanding. Well, you're not going to 
see it change over your lifetime. Yes, if an astronomer made detailed picture now of it, came back 10 years later and made another picture, you could see that all these things had moved out a little tiny bit. You could actually measure the rate of expansion. But you can't really see it to your eye. The one few thing that you can see that actually takes time is the supernova explosion. It's one of the few things in astronomy that happens that fast that you can actually see it without living for 20 million years to, to watch it. Other questions? Good. Good. Okay. Gamma rays, you can't even focus them like that. So gamma rays, you can't focus. You can detect the area they're coming from, but you, you're all, your images are always by nature going to be blurry. You can't really get a good, nice focus. You saw that picture I just showed you in the x-rays. We were able to focus those x-rays and get a reasonably nice image that was comparable to what we get from you know, an optical telescope. Gamma rays, you can't. So there's no way to focus them. You can have detectors. We can detect them. But they're just too high energy. There is no way to focus exactly. You can point your telescope and you know roughly where they're coming from because you know where your telescope is pointing. But you can't narrow it down. You can't get real high resolution in gamma rays. And again, gamma rays are done from above the surface of the Earth. You've got to get up above the surface of the Earth to see them. Yes, sir? So basically, they use the x-rays to more or less see the images better with the gamma rays. Are they working hand when they use those? Working, I'm sorry, working the x-rays. Yeah, they both show high energy, but gamma rays are even higher energy. Okay. So gamma rays, we'll get there's some gamma ray bursters and some things that are some very extremely energetic objects that can be, you know, beyond a supernova, actually. Yes, sir. Question? Well, you notice how we, we normally we focused them, they like light rays bounced real easily. X-rays, you had to very glancing. Gamma rays just won't even focus at that point. They're just too high, too high energy. There's just too much energy there. There's no way to get them to bounce off that. You can detect them. You can, so I can put a detector there and say, OK, I'm pointing at this part of the sky and I'm detecting so many. But I can't get them to, I can't get a focus on it. Yeah? Yeah, so um, you're saying that if you were trying to look at it through a telescope, it can't be focused properly? Right. Okay. It would be constantly, you'd, you'd see a blurry, I mean, this would be a nice gamma ray image. There's something here that's emitting the gamma rays, but I can't focus them enough to be able to say, well, is there one object, is there two, or are there ten there? Remember I showed you that with the stars. You know, maybe you could get better resolution. You could see that maybe there's two objects here. Gamma rays, we don't have that ability. There's no way we know of, at least as of this point, to be able to focus them. Okay. Well, I'm sure they, ha they have. I mean, look at the x-rays. You had to go very, very narrow. And what do you mean, at different? At different angles, like you know, one from this angle and one from that angle. So maybe at this point you can't see if there's several, but at this angle you can see that maybe there's like two objects. Oh, in terms of different, the problem is we can't. We only have one place to look from is Earth. Is that what you're meaning? If you could look, you think of it on Earth. Yeah, I could look from here and I could look from here. But when you're looking at things that are many light years away, but don't can we use, you know, we've got telescopes all over the country. Yeah, but even that. It's, it's nothing. It's like saying, you know, if you're figuring out the distance from here to London, England. You know, you get, they'll give you a number, right? But you don't go whether it's this part of, you know, there's that little bits, whether you're one part of London, the other little bit's further away and some's a little bit closer. Same thing when you get out there in space. You know, the things are that far away that the little bit of a distance that I, we can move in our solar system. It is a good point. Yeah, if we could move around our solar system and around our galaxy and observe these things, that would help. You could get a different point of view. But because the distances are so great, 
It's so, sort of like saying, you know, the distance is so many miles to London. But if you want to go to this part, it's a mile more. Does it really matter when you're, you know, it matters when you're there and doing it, but it doesn't matter at our distance. It's like, yeah, it's all the same. Yeah? So you're saying that, like, because it can't be in focus properly, it's due to the distance and how far away it is? It's not due to the distance, it's due to the energy of the particles. So you were suggesting that maybe we could look at it, you know, you're the, you're the source. She, I think if I'm thinking right, you're saying, well, I could look at you from here, and I could go look at you from here, and I could go look at you from there. The problem is that the distance, you're so far away that the little bit I can move on Earth doesn't make, I'm still seeing you exactly the same. So it has to do with the particles? It has to do with the particles themselves. They're just so high energy, we cannot focus them. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Questions on telescopes? I'm going to go through the review, but that was the end of, said we were almost done. Oh, almost. One more picture. Sorry. The Milky Way. Forgot I put that in there. We look at the same object. And this is an example. This is all these are the pictures of the entire sky. So this is essentially the whole sky. And a little projection here. This you may have seen pictures similar to it. That's our Milky Way galaxy. So if you get a nice dark site and you look out at night, you can see that bright band of light through the sky. Okay? That's what it looks like in visible light. The upper example above it is radio. Close, you see the band of our galaxy, but you see some other, start to see some other features. When you look at it in infrared, interesting, you start to get some stuff up above and below it. X-rays, you don't see that much necessarily in our galaxy. It seems to be coming from outside of our galaxy. And gamma rays, again, seem to be focused back down. So you get different patterns. Because when you're looking at these, you're looking at different objects. You're not seeing, when you're looking in visible light, we're looking at the stars. So here we're seeing the stars. In infrared, we're looking at more of the dusty areas. So we're still seeing, and the, and the dust in our galaxy is concentrated right to the flat plane of the galaxy. In x-rays, we're likely looking at a lot of things that are outside our galaxy. So certainly there are x-ray sources in our galaxy, as I showed you some, but there's also a lot of stuff that's outside of our galaxy that we're not seeing. And when we look at gamma ray bursts, that's a gamma ray of our galaxy, but you actually get gamma ray bursts from all over. So you actually get some little bursters, and there's probably some little bright spots shown here that are just coming from all over, very distant objects in the universe. Each one, put them together, we can learn a lot more about our galaxy. This is just an example of the Milky Way. You can do the same thing. In fact, I showed you the radio and optical of Centaurus A, that active galaxy. One looks like a big blob of a galaxy. The other had two big jets going off in opposite directions. They look completely different. We can learn a lot more about an object. Now, you know, 100 years ago, there's what we had. That's what we could learn about the Milky Way. Now we can look at it in all these images. And I don't think it shows ultraviolet on this one, no. So you can look at ultraviolet as well. And you can learn more because each of them is looking at different things. One is looking at the typical stars we're used to looking at. One is looking at the dust. One is looking at the very high energy objects. Another one might be following some of the, the gas in the, the hydrogen gas in the galaxy, perhaps the radio. We learn different things by looking at different wavelengths. And that's one of the reasons that this is so important now that we can do this. So we can look at an object find an interesting object in the optical, that's great, but we can also have the X-ray astronomers look at it with their telescopes, gamma-ray astronomers, infrared astronomers, everybody looks at it, and you get different points of view looking at it different 
in different ways. So that's sort of what we're working at, what astronomers are working on now, trying to look at everything. Now, this is just an example of looking at our galaxy, primarily the Milky Way galaxy in there, but looking at other objects in the, in the universe. Questions? Okay. Now we'll end up here. So again, now this is just the review. Go through refracting telescopes. We had refracting and reflecting telescopes depending on whether you used a lens or a mirror to make the image. Refracting telescopes pretty much only applied to, only one we looked at was optical. So we had optical refracting telescopes using a lens. Everything else we looked at used a mirror. So whether it was infrared, ultraviolet, radio, even you know, the x-rays were all focusing with, with mirrors. And all of the modern telescopes are reflectors. So everything that's been made for a while is a reflecting telescope. Data collection is the CCD. We talked about that. CCDs are charge coupled devices. Same thing that you use in your you know, digital cameras and everything else. Same type of thing. Astronomers use you know, bigger and you know, more detailed versions of those to get very high resolution pictures of the sky. So that's the detector we use. Used to be regular photographic film. CCDs are much nicer, of course, because you get the image right away. You, know, you can see it right away. So you can tell how things, sort of get an idea of how things came out immediately. And you can analyze. Much easier to manipulate digital data than it is to manipulate a picture, right? The old style, you've got your old pictures. Well, unless you scan them all in digitally and then manipulate them, it's, you can't do a lot with that picture. So astronomers can do a lot more with those that way. The data, we can make an image. So we can just take a picture of it. We looked at a picture today of the Rosette Nebula as an example. We could look at the intensity of different objects. We could measure how bright some of the stars are. Or we could split that light up into the spectrum and analyze it spectroscopically. What is it made up of? So we could use that to find out what it's made up of. Large telescopes. We want bigger and bigger telescopes. Why? Because they gather more light, letting us see things that are fainter. And they have a better resolution. We can see more detail. Again, watch out because that resolution was limited by the Earth. Right? Our Earth's atmosphere caused twinkling of stars and doesn't allow us to get very, very good necessary resolution because the atmosphere is so bad. Above the atmosphere, we can see that. And that's one of the reasons we keep building larger and larger telescopes is to, again, primarily gather more light here on Earth. But even now that we have more techniques to observe with, we can get better resolution as well. And again, I just sort of said that. Resolution of ground-based optical telescopes is limited by the atmosphere. So the atmosphere is what causes, pro- causes the problems for us. Get rid of the atmosphere, astronomers would be very happy, except they didn't breathe either. So. Resolution of the radio telescopes or space-based telescopes, doesn't, the atmosphere doesn't affect them. So if you're up above the atmosphere, it doesn't matter. The, above the atmosphere, you can get your resolution is limited by the size of the telescope. That's what we call the diffraction limit. How big, then really how big your telescope is does matter because you will get more resolution. There's a limiting value that you can get. We mentioned things like active and adaptive optics. We deform the mirror in order to be able to adjust for atmospheric effects and be able to see it. And we said some of the other things. We're putting a telescope you know, up on a mountain, putting telescopes into space, other ways to get around these atmospheric effects. 
Radio telescopes have to be big. Showed you the one last time, right? Arecibo is in that 300 meters across in the valley in Puerto Rico. So, can't move, it's built in the valley. It looks straight up. That's all it can see is what happens to pass straight up or relatively close to straight overhead. But we need very big ones because of this issue that they don't get a quite as good resolution because they're looking at wavelengths that are, you know, wavelengths you can consider. You know, you can imagine that wavelength. You can't really imagine the wavelength of blue light. I can tell you how much it is, but it's not something that you can comprehend. You know, 400 and some nanometers is not a number that you're familiar with. When I tell you something is 2, 4, 6 centimeters, 10 centimeters, 20 centimeters, you at least can get an idea of, you know, you can relate that to something else. And one way we do that to get the better resolution is by using what we call interferometry. Interferometry was putting the one telescope here, one telescope here, you know, bunch of telescopes together all looking at the same object. If you look at how the waves interfered, you can re rework that and make it as though it's one great big telescope. So we can actually get radio telescopes that instead of being 300 meters can be kilometers, hundreds of kilometers, thousands of kilometers in size. You're limited by the size of the Earth. Put, a, put telescopes scattered around the Earth, you're only limited by the size of the Earth. All right, and finally, infrared and ultraviolet telescopes are really just like optical. So, same type of materials that you'd use. You'd think of them all as refracting telescopes. Don't worry about refracting telescopes. In fact, some things you can't use refracting telescopes, right? You know, ultraviolet light gets blocked out very well by glass. So making a nice lens to, re to, re to focus ultraviolet light isn't going to work very good because it's all going to get absorbed in the glass. It's not going to get through. So you wouldn't be able to see it. So everything is a reflecting. Everything is more of a mirror. Ultraviolet has to be above the atmosphere. Infrared doesn't have to be above the atmosphere. It should be, a lot of it is, you've got to get high in the atmosphere. You've got to really get above the water. That's the biggest problem with it, is getting above the water. And then we looked at x-rays and finished up with those, how we can focus x-rays. We can focus them, but it's different. You have to focus them at a very glancing angle and they use those cylindrical mirrors I mentioned. And gamma rays, you can't focus at all. So there's no way to focus a gamma ray. So the whole idea is that astronomers want to do bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger telescopes. And that hasn't always been the case and I thought this was interesting. Got a little thing here to read you that I found. I was looking at some of the, you know, nowadays they have all the books that are out of copyright that you can get. So there were some old astronomy ones that I was getting. And there was one titled, an article actually that was there titled The Future of Astronomy by, who wrote it? Uh, Edward C. Pickering in 1909. And I was also interested in it in that it was the commencement address he gave. Talking about telescopes and his commencement address, kind of interesting nowadays anyway, right? I mean, go to a commencement address, expect to hear about telescopes. Well, it was actually done at, in 1909 at the school I graduated from many, many years after that. So, but one of the interesting things that he said that really doesn't apply, and it's just about a paragraph here I was going to read to you, he's talking about Alvin Clark and his two sons, and they placed America in the front rank, not only in the construction, but possession of the largest and most perfect telescopes ever made. It is not easy to secure the world's record in any subject. The Clarks constructed successively an 18-inch lens, Small. Remember, this is over 100 years ago. 26 inch, that was 18 inch lens for Chicago, 26 inch for Washington, 30 inch for Pulkoa, 36 inch for Lick, and the 40 inch for Yerkes. Those are all lenses, and that 40 inch one is now the largest, still the largest refracting telescope that exists. 
Each was in turn the largest yet made, and each time the Clarks were called upon to surpass the world's record in which they themselves had already established. Now his question he asked, have we reached the limit in size? Well, no. If we include reflectors, no. He was talking about refracting telescopes. Since we now have mirrors of 60 inches in aperture at Mount Wilson in Cambridge, 60 inches isn't very big nowadays, and a still larger one of 100 inches that is being undertaken, it is doubtful, however, whether a further increase in size is a great advantage. Now this is not, this is, this, the commencement address was given by a professional astronomer who had at this point, I think he was about 30 years, he'd been running the Harvard College Observatory. And he's saying, you know, over 100 years ago that he thinks telescopes are about as big as they're going to get. You know, 100 inches was going to be it. We, of course, have now gone way beyond that many times. And in some things he's right. He says much more depends on the conditions, especially those of climate, the kind of work to be done, and more than all, the observer, the person doing the observing. And he compares it to a battleship. Says the case is none like that of a battleship. Would a ship a thousand feet long always sink one of 500 feet? Not necessarily. It seems as if we have re nearly reached the limit of size of telescopes, and we much, must hope for impro next improvement to be in some other direction. So just thought that was interesting. I'd been reading that. That you know, 100-inch telescope was really big, but you know we've reached the limit of what we can do, and now we've gone to things that are 10, 12 meters across. I mean, a 100-inch telescope, you know, I can I can imagine 100 inches. These ones that start to be meters and meters wide, are much much bigger. Now he was right in some cases because at the time, that 40-inch telescope I mentioned, 40-inch refracting telescope, it's located in Chicago. You know what we can see here, right? Can you imagine what observing is like just outside of Chicago? You know, not going to see a whole lot. You know what the weather's like compared here? Chicago's about the same, right? You know, it doesn't, you know, you don't get a lot of cloudy days. So one of the things that has changed since then is where we put the telescopes. We put the telescopes in much nicer areas where the weather, you know, you put them down in South Arizona where it's nice, you know, you might get 300 clear days instead of 60 clear nights, 300 clear nights to observe instead of 60 clear nights. Yeah, you still get clouds and rain, but not near as much. But I thought it was a little interesting and wanted to share that with you kind of to end this, end this chapter. Questions on telescopes before we start jumping into the planets? No? Okay. All right, let's go on to the planets. And again, I've put... Uh, and I have these should be up for you on D2L if you want. And I said, it's, again, it skims through the chapters. So I've sort of picked the high points as to what I want to cover and what I want you to know about it. But chapter four is the solar system. Now I've left the front one so you sort of know when I'm going between chapter to chapter. But you'll see that we don't spend near as much time on each one. And again, that's primarily because the topic of this class is not the solar system but is the rest of astronomy essentially. We're going to spend, after we get through this, we're going to talk about the sun and then go into more detail about the stars how stars' lives go, stars, galaxies, and the universe. But the solar system is, is still a part of astronomy, and we do want to cover a little bit of that. And this is about how things have kind of changed. Long ago, when we looked about the history of astronomy, we knew, you know, early astronomy, we're talking thousands of years ago, they knew of the moon, stars, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. So the moon, the stars, the five planets, only five planets. Earth wasn't a planet at the time. Earth was still special. Comets. You'd see comets and you'd see meteors. That was the extent of astronomical knowledge. And again, even 
several hundred years ago. That was about all we knew. It wasn't until much more recently with the advent of Galileo and the telescope that we started to learn about things beyond this and actually started to discover further planets. Now, we've gone from one moon. At the time, you know, before Galileo, there was only one moon known, and that was the one orbiting around us. You know, it went through its phases every month. Now we know 166 moons in our solar system. We've got one. Mars has two. Mercury and Venus don't have any, so that's three in the inner part of the solar system, way in here. Almost all the, all the rest of them are Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, all have all of the moons. And many of them have you know, 20, 30 moons apiece. So they actually have a large number of satellites orbiting them as compared to our one and the few around the two little tiny ones around Mars. So 166 moons, one star, the sun, eight planets, we've added two more, three more actually, right? We added three more. We knew Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, that was five. We added Uranus and Neptune, found those much further out. They're not quite visible without a telescope, so you couldn't really see them. And we added the Earth. Right? Earth was not classified, Earth would not have been classified as a planet. It was not the same as one of those planets and wasn't thought to be until the times of Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo. We also now know about asteroids. Asteroids were not known at all a long time ago. There's a whole belt of them here in between Mars and Jupiter, but they're not visible to the naked eye. Comets, we still know about comets. We know a lot more about them than we knew before. Meteors we knew. Meteoroids, similar. Meteors, a meteor is what you see in the sky. You see that shooting star? That's a meteor. That's what they could see before. Meteoroids are, could be the same object, could be a bigger object. It's just really any lump of material out in space, just traveling around the planets. Eventually they're the ones that could, uh, could strike the Earth. They could be very little, they could be very big. The other thing that's been discovered that was not known are the Kuiper Belt objects. That's where Pluto occurs now. So Pluto is out part of this big belt of objects that are very similar to it. Very cold, icy objects out in the depths of the solar system. So Pluto is actually now one of those objects. So that's sort of where we've gone from the solar system. We knew a few things a long time ago. We now know a lot more and we've seen a lot more detail. We have now visited with space probes, we've landed on the moon, so we actually sent people to the moon. But we've actually visited with space probes. We now have one orbiting Mercury. The Messenger spacecraft is actually in orbit around Mercury. We visited Mercury a few times before that. Venus has been visited and mapped. There's been Russian probes that have actually landed on the surface of Venus to take pictures of that. Mars, we have the rovers on Mars right now. And we've had orbiters around Mars. Jupiter has. Uh, the Voyager spacecraft, some of the Pioneer spacecraft, and the Galileo spacecraft. So we've got a lot more detail just from that. Saturn has Cassini as well as the Voyager spacecraft that went there. Uranus and Neptune have only been visited once by Voyager 2. So we've only visited them once. And actually Pluto, not a planet now, but Pluto actually has, there's a spacecraft on the way to Pluto. Launched a few years ago and it's scheduled to get there I got to remember the year now, 2015, I think it is. When did they declassify as a planet? About seven, about 2004, 2005. What they did was they made a formal definition of what a, really a planet is. 
and Pluto doesn't fit the criteria for a planet. It has to be a certain size, has to be able to pull itself into a sphere, which Pluto does. But the problem with Pluto is, you see all, the, all these objects here? It's one of these. And in order to be a planet, you have to be big enough to have cleared out your orbit. And Pluto is not big enough. There's a lot of objects like it. It's sort of like this little asteroid belt in there. There's a lot of objects that are good size, you know, very big. But none, not one of them ever grew big enough to clear out its orbit and make it empty. You know, Saturn is there by itself. There's not a big swarm of objects around with it. Uranus, Earth, there's not a lot of objects with it. That was one of the criteria that was made as to how to define what, you know, the planet had never been defined before. So when astronomers actually made the definition and decided how they were going to claim what you had to be, what things had to be to be a planet, Pluto didn't quite, didn't make it. It made two of the, the three criteria, Pluto made two of them, but it didn't make the third to be a planet. So it's now classified as a dwarf planet. So Pluto is actually a dwarf planet. Uh, Eris is a dwarf planet, is another object, actually a little bit bigger than Pluto as part of this Kuiper belt. And Ceres, the largest asteroid, is actually a dwarf planet. They're objects that can pull themselves into a sphere. So they can, their gravity is big enough, they're big enough that they're, instead of being all sorts of odd shapes, which we'll see for comets and things, they're actually pulled into a sphere. But they're not big enough to clear the rest of their area. Now they may have. It may have been possible that, no, maybe these asteroids would have formed into a planet if Jupiter and Saturn and their gravity wasn't so strong and so close that it may have just kept them from forming. It may have sort of disrupted them and kept them from forming. Yes, sir? And not, and not one of the... One of the other dwarf planets that you mentioned. Well, dwarf planets were defined, only defined a few years ago. Pluto was, found, it was searching for a planet. When they were looking for Pluto, the thought at the time was that Neptune wasn't orbiting right. It was, they couldn't explain its orbit. And they searched for another object out there that might be affecting it gravitationally. It might be tugging on it a little bit. Speeding it up, slowing it down in its orbit. And after many years of searching, they found they finally found Pluto, which again was the first of one of these Kuiper Belt objects. At the time, it was thought Jupiter, Pluto was much bigger than it was. You know, Pluto has gotten progressively smaller. I think it's now, now that we've got the most refined measurements, it's smaller than like the Earth's moon. So it's gotten very, very tiny. We thought it was a lot bigger, so we thought it was a planet. We thought it was something, you know, maybe not as big as the Earth, but maybe as big as Mars. And it's just continually shrunk down in size as we've gotten better and better measurements. And then we finally had more, me more accurate measurements had shown that Neptune really wasn't behaving incorrectly. It was actually behaving normally. So it just turns out that Pluto was originally thought to be much bigger than it was. So it was classified, originally classified as a planet. But we've since found out that it, wa that it is not. It's much smaller. Question, yes, sir? Is a satellite something going to Pluto? Yes, yeah, there is a spacecraft that is on its way to Pluto right now. We'll, we'll see it. it. It won't get there for a few more years. Like how do we see it, though? Isn't it like the signal or something? Yeah, it'll send, us, it'll send a radio signal back. It'll have cameras on board that can take pictures, and then it will radio those signals back to us. So it'll send them through radio waves. It takes it several hours to get a signal there and back. So, you know, it takes the picture now, but we won't find out about it. We won't get it for a couple hours. But it, still, it won't get there till. I think it's 2015. I think we got about three, three or four more years. 2015, 2016. It's supposed to get there. I think it's out towards Jupiter right now. It's a long ways to be traveling. Yeah. Did you find it? 
Oh, did, okay. Does it say when it's going? Is it 2015? Okay. How fast is it going? It's moving pretty fast now, but. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty quick, and it's, if it's at the orbit of Uranus, that makes it about halfway to Pluto. Pluto's about twice as far away as Uranus is from the sun. So if it's gone there, it's about half, it's about halfway. Yeah, one second. This is, uh, this, as far as I know, this is not an orbit, it's a flyby. It's just going to fly by. You'd have to have enough power to be able to slow it down to get it into an orbit. It'll, it'll, get, it'll get that with Jupiter and Saturn. We got a lot of nice pictures. You just don't get to go back and look at anything, anything again. You know, if you miss it the first time, you're stuck. You, know, you can't turn around and go back. That is, that is a problem. Question? Um, you have, wait me one second then. You don't get to control it, right? It just goes straight. Right. You can control minor. You can steer it a little bit to keep it on course, but it doesn't have enough fuel to you know, change its, to significantly change its orbit. Yeah. Well, if it's just a flyby, where does it go once it's past Pluto? It It'll continue out into space, yep. As has happened to the Voyager probes and the Pioneer probes, they're actually, you know, traveling out toward into, into space right now. Well, can they, like, keep sending, like, photos and bars? As long as they still have power. You've got to remember, you're getting that far away, you have the solar power isn't an option when you get out that far. It's usually a nuclear, not a nuclear reactor in terms of we think of it, with, nuclear, with the decay of nuclear isotopes. Once that runs down, then you have no more energy source. And it's just, then it's just on a straight trajectory. Wherever it's going, it's going to keep going. But they run out of photons, too. I'm sorry? Photons, but they run out of those, too? Or is that It'll get, it'll get, there won't be as much light, yeah. So you couldn't use, you couldn't put big solar cells up or anything because there's not enough light to do that. So it's usually a nuclear, I don't call it a nuclear reactor, it's usually like the decay, the heat produced by the decay of a nuclear isotopes. But if they have a half-life of, you know, 20 or 30 years, over hundreds of years, they're gone. So it would not have any more, any source of energy at that point. You know, ones that are here, if we send something into Mercury, it's nice because you can put big solar cells on it and... You don't have to worry. You could keep it going for as long as till, till some of the equipment started to fail, because you don't have to worry about an energy source. When you go in the other direction, the sun's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and fainter and fainter, and you don't have a source of energy. Good. Other questions? Okay. All right. So that's what we know. That's what we know now. So here's an example. We divide them into two two groups: the terrestrial planets, ones like Earth. That's Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And the Jovian planets. Jovian is like Jupiter. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. And table 4-2 from your textbook gives you sort of the comparison. Terrestrial planets, and what's, what we find the patterns are. Terrestrial planets are very close to the sun, and they're very close together. You know, the Earth is one astronomical unit from the sun. Mars is about one and a half. And we have four planets in that one and a half astronomical units. So they're all concentrated very, very close together to the sun. The Jovian planets are very far away, and their orbits are very far apart. Jupiter is five astronomical units. Saturn is twice as far away. Saturn is 10. Uranus is twice as far away as that is 20. Uh, Neptune is about 30. Pluto is about 40. So when we talk about that, if we're at, if we're at Uranus right now with this satellite, then it's, still, it's gone 20 astronomical units essentially from the sun. It's still got 20 more to go to get to Pluto. So they're very widely spaced when you, when you get out there. They're also very small. Terrestrial planets are very small, both in terms of how much matter there is and how size-wise, what their size is. 
So very small size, very big size. Terrestrial planets are all about the same size. The Earth is the largest by a little bit over Venus. Venus is almost the same size. Then Mars and Mercury are a little bit smaller, a little bit are significantly smaller. With their makeup, they have they're primarily made of rocks. And we'll notice that when we look at Mercury, Venus, Mars, they're all very similar to the Earth. They're planets that you can compare to the Earth very, very easily. You know, you could imagine landing on any of these. You couldn't land on either of these planets. They don't have a solid surface anyplace. So there's no solid surface. You can go to want to land on Jupiter. Jupiter is just a big cloud of gas, big, big glob of gas. It gets denser and denser as you get to the center, but there's never a surface. There's never any place that you're actually going to land. And yes, you'll probably look at the book, it'll say it's got a rocky core down there. But the thing is, as you get close to that rocky core, there's so much material above it that the gas is now den- as dense as the rock. It's so squished in, that, so there's no difference between when you get to the end of the gas and the beginning of the rock, there's no difference like when you feel the difference between the atmosphere and the earth, ground on the Earth, there's a big difference in the density. When you get to Jupiter, there's so much atmosphere pushing down that that atmosphere is so thick that it's as dense as the rock. So there's really no solid surface. There's no place you could actually go land anything. If you were to send a space probe into it, which we've done, it would slowly get crushed. You know, it would go through. You'd be able to make observations, but the pressure would get higher and higher and higher. Think of it as going down into an endless ocean. The dense pressure just gets higher and higher and higher. And eventually, you know, many objects would just get crushed by the pressure of the water above it. Well, the atmosphere can do the same thing. So that's the surface. That's the composition. Can you get to? Can you get to them? Oh, you can get. We've sent probes into their atmospheres. Well, at what point do they start to crush? I don't know the exact depths, but you don't get near anything. I mean, it doesn't take very much to get down in there and crush them. I mean, you might be talking many kilometers. I don't think these are significantly bigger than the Earth. So you could be going down Earth depths into them, but relative to the planet, you're still not getting in. You know, you're not getting near to the core of it. In terms of density. Earth, Venus, Mars all have densities of rocks to metals, about densities of about five times that, three to five times that of water. The Jovian planets, overall, even though I've said parts of them get extremely dense in the center, overall they're very low density because there's a big giant atmosphere around it that is very low density gas. So overall, it has a very low density. In fact, Saturn is the one that if you calculate how much mass it has and how much volume it has, and you could find that giant ocean to set it in, it would float. Its density is actually less than that of water. You know, put the Earth in a giant ocean, it sinks. Right? It's mostly rock. Mars, anything else would do the same. Saturn is the only one that would actually float. Its density is actually less than that of water. Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune are closer to water, but they're a little bit, a little bit bigger. Terrestrial planets rotate very quickly, or very, very slowly, sorry. It takes 24, 24 hours for the, for the Earth to revolve once on its axis. So a day is 24 hours. Mars is actually very close to the same. Mars is about 24 and a half hours. It takes about the same amount of time. But that's relatively slow. Mercury, we'll see, takes 58 <coughs> days. So one day on Mercury would be 58 days. It takes how long it takes it to spin once. Venus is actually 200 and, if I remember correctly, about 240 days. So it takes a long, long time. Overall, they're very slow rotation because Jupiter rotates once in less than 10 hours. So 
Monster big planet, but it's whipping around there very quickly. It only takes 10 hours for it to make one revolution. So a day on, a day on Jupiter would be 10, it would be a little less, like 9 hours and 56 minutes. It's like a little under 10 hours. Saturn's a little bit slower than that, but not much, and so are Uranus and Neptune. But you're still talking things significantly less than our, than our day. Magnetic fields. These objects have much stronger magnetic fields. We don't have much of a magnetic field. We fortunately have enough to protect us, which is good, but not a very strong magnetic field by comparison. Rings and moons. There essentially aren't any on the terrestrial planets. Yeah, the Earth has a moon. Mars has two little tiny, okay, not quite this tiny, but two little tiny things. But no rings. There are no rings in the inner solar system. There's only three moons out of 166. When you get out to the Jovian planets, every single one of them has rings. You've heard of the rings of Saturn, but Jupiter has a ring, Uranus has a set of rings, even Neptune has rings. All three of them actually have rings. Nowhere near as pretty as the ones we'll see of Saturn, but each of them does have rings. Each of them also has a big group of moons. You know, 163 moons split among the four. It's averaging about 40 moons apiece. So there's a lot of moons scattered around those. Not all of them are big. Some of them are relatively small. But by comparison, you know, the Earth still only has one. You know, we got one big moon. We got a bunch of artificial moons we put up there, right? All the sa- every satellite we put up is technically a satellite and a moon. But in terms of naturally occurring moons, one for us, two for Mars, 163 among those four planets. Much bigger planets have many more, many more moons. What causes, what is the rings? What causes the rings? Yeah. Probably material that is too close to the planet to actually form a moon. There's a limit, and I'll talk about it in terms of tides in a little bit, but there's a limit as to how close something can get to the moon because, well, to a planet. If your planet's here and you've got a moon here, okay, and they're close, gravity's pulling on it keeps it in orbit. But gravity is also pulling on this side of the moon more than it's pulling on this side of the moon. If you're close enough and you're pulling hard enough on this side of the moon compared to this side, you rip it apart. So you can actually tear that moon apart if it gets too close to the planet. Jupiter would do that. If you got too close to Jupiter and you had something that big, now it wouldn't work with something little, it's something big like a moon where there's a big difference between the gravity on one side and the gravity on the other. You can actually tear it apart. And that's some of their thought process as to why the moons would have, would have formed. Or the, the moons, why the, sat, why the rings would have formed. Yes, sir? It says the basic components of a comet. Would that be like the, uh, would the components be located in that picture to the right, picture B? Yeah, the parts, just the different parts of it. The and the nucleus? Yep. Okay. So I'm going to go through it. I'm, I'm kind of jumping around right now. You're going to hit a few, just hit a few of the basics, give you some ideas of the different objects that we see in the solar system. So the basic components of the comet, we have the nucleus. That's the actual solid part of a comet, which might be you know, a few kilometers across, meters, depending on how big it is. Could be a decent-sized object. Usually a ball of, uh, called a dirty snowball. Think of it that way. So it's a snowball, but it's, a very, it's not that nice, heavy snow that packs real well. It's the real fluffy snow that doesn't want to pack. It's just kind of a very loosely packed comet. So it's not a real nice, heavy, dense snowball. And it's got a lot of dust and dirt in it. But when it comes close to the sun, that nucleus gets heated up. It gets close to the sun. It's going to get warmer. Well, when ices get close to the sun, they're going to start to change. And they're going to start to evaporate. And you're going to get a halo around it that we call, in this case, a coma. Sort of makes the head of the comet. 
And that's just little bits of material that evaporated from the nucleus. The tail is material from that coma that's then pushed backwards by the sun. So the radiation pressure from the sun, which as you see is off in this direction, pushes the tail away from it. And this one is actually a picture of a comet. So you can't see the nucleus. Nucleus, every time you see a comet, it's buried. But then you see the tails being pushed way back. Yes? Mm-hmm. It'll dissolve, yes. Over time. Not all, you know, comets can come back and forth a number of times. Halley's Comet is one that's well known. Came back in 85, 86, and it's due back in 2061. So it'll come back every 75, 76 years. It'll come back around. So some of the material is evaporated, not all of it. In fact, we just had Comet Lovejoy pass very, very close to the sun. And they weren't sure whether it was going to survive, whether it was going to pass too close or not. And it actually made it around and came back out. Question, sir? I was going to say, once it goes back out, mm-hmm. more not, not any significant amount. They would slowly, over time, you know, a comet might make 50, 100 passes. And eventually, depending on how close it gets to the sun each time, it would, it would eventually be gone. It would eventually break it, just be broken apart. So you're really not, you probably could gain a little bit, but you're not going to gain any significant amount of material not compared to what you've lost getting close to the sun each time. So mostly icy, not a lot, not a lot of rock. More, the rock is more dusty, dusty pieces, you know, little tiny fragments, nothing big, not in terms of rocks as we think of rocks here on Earth. And that's the tails, or tails we'll see in just a minute here. And then around it you get a big hydrogen envelope. So just a big, big chunk of hydrogen around it, just again, broken up from all the little ices. Because ices are primarily hydrogen. We think of ice, and when I say ices, you think of ice as water ice, right? Well, water ice is hydrogen and oxygen, right? There's also methane ice. Methane is nitrogen and hydrogen. Or sorry, carbon and hydrogen. Do the right one. I'm jumping ahead to ammonia, which is nitrogen and hydrogen. You can get those as ices that we'll see a lot too. So you can freeze methane, you can freeze ammonia. All of them are partially, are partially hydrogen. So as they get broken apart by the energy of the sun, you end up with a big hydrogen envelope. And again, the comet won't be able to hold that. That slowly dissipates into space, especially when it gets close to the sun and leaves the sun. Then the, the comet has no way to hold on to anything. Its gravity is way too small to hold on to any kind of atmosphere like the, like the Earth does. Now, solar wind. Solar wind is pressure from the sun pushing it away. So this is one of the interesting things that a comet does. When a comet comes in towards the sun, and you see the little arrows as it's coming in here, you won't get much of a tail when you're very far away from the sun. Okay? No tail. You're well far away from the sun. There's not enough, it's not heated up enough. You're not losing enough material. You're not going to see a tail. As it comes closer and closer, you build up that tail. So the tail will get longer and longer and longer. Notice that the tail is always pointing away from the sun. So it doesn't matter where you are in your orbit. You know, it make, it's natural here, right? The tail is behind the comet. So the tail is following behind the comet. As it comes closer, now the tail is pushing out here, here. As a comet leaves and goes back out into space, the tail goes first. So the tail is actually leading the rest of the comet. You tend to think of a tail as following behind, but when it's, le- when it's going away, it's still the pressure from the sun that's pushing it away, so it's still going to go into there. So here, the comet is leading the tail. Here, the comet's running into the, running into the tail. 
you know, following the tail out into, out into space. And it will then slowly, as you get further and further away from the sun, it'll dissipate. So that tail will slowly dissipate as the materials are no longer being evaporated by the sun. You'll get much less of a coma, much less of a tail, and that'll slowly dissipate as you go off into space. Now there's two kinds of tails that we get. And you see two of them mentioned here. The ion tail is the one I've been talking about right now. Ion tail is essentially atoms. So little things that have been broken apart, you know, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, all those little things that have been ionized are being pushed back by the solar wind. You also, when you get close, close enough, I said the comet was a dirty snowball. It's got a lot of dirt to it too, dusty pieces. Those dusty pieces start getting pushed away, but they're a lot heavier. You know, you're talking about little fragments of dust, incredibly tiny, but much, much bigger than just a single atom, many, many atoms together. So you form two tails, and in many comets you'll actually see one tail, very long and straight, pointing away, and you'll see another tail with a little bit of a curvature. It's just that that dust is so much heavier, it gets left behind in the orbit. So the dust gets left behind, giving it a little more of a curved tail. So you'll see two different tails. You'll see the ion tail, straight back, and you'll see the dusty tail only when it's closer to the sun and sort of in a curved, in a little more curved pattern, following, the, following behind in its direction of motion. Meteor showers are actually associated with comets. So we mentioned comets. So how can they come back? Can they pick up more material? Well, not, not really any significant amount. What happens over time is that the comet will leave chunks of material spread across its orbit. So the comet orbit might have been like this, and there may have been one pass finally where it just finally broke up. It was finally just too much. There wasn't enough material left, and it just spread out. And its material is now spread out across this orbit. Well, at times, the Earth may pass through, will pass through that material. It's all just a, it's a little bit of comet, comet junk, comet dust. Little pieces of ice, little pieces of dust. When the Earth passes through them, we get a meteor shower. Now, a meteor shower is all those little tiny flakes, you know, nothing bigger than a grain of sand, pretty much. And they burn up real high up in the Earth's atmosphere. But they'll form um, a number of shooting stars. Some of the better ones, the Perseids in August, are one of the best. Um, just for visibility, not just because there's a lot of, usually a lot of meteors, and you can actually get about one a minute which is a relatively high number, but it's also usually a nicer time to go out and look at the sky in the evening and you know the beginning of August than it is. There's a nice one in December and January too, but usually a little chillier to go out and look at them. But they're the material that's left over, and that's what we call a meteor shower, are all little bits and pieces of old comets. So you're seeing little bits of an old comet, or maybe even a current comet, because even a comet that's still active, like Halley's Comet, you, know, you could break one up completely, or it could just leave some particles are constantly going to be left in that path. So you're constantly, you can leave particles behind and when the Earth happens to pass through that orbit, then you'd be able to detect that. You'd be able to detect that as a meteor shower. So they happen at regular times each year. You know, we can predict when, the, when they're going to occur. What we can't predict very accurately is how nice they're going to be. You know, whether you're going to get you know, 50 meteors every hour or 100 meteors every hour or 10 every hour. That's a lot harder to predict because these particles are tiny. You can't detect them. You know, you detect them when they hit the Earth's atmosphere. So that's sort of related to comets. That's where the meteors come from. That's, and that's what we call a shooting star. 
Most of what you see there, anything you see is not stuff that's ever going to make it down to the surface of the Earth. When you do get bigger ones, you know, there are bigger objects. You can actually get objects that will make it through the surface of the Earth. And in this case, make a crater. Crater here is about, that's about a kilometer. So about a kilometer across. A little over half a mile. And that would have been formed by a meteor probably about 100 meters across, so something about the size of a football field. Yeah, typically a crater will form about 10 times larger than the object that struck. So if something a kilometer were to hit, 10 kilometer crater. 10 kilometers hit, 100, you know. So if you happen to get a really big object, this was actually a relatively small object, and this is Meteor Crater in Arizona. But it's still a kilometer, you know, half a mile across from something that was the size of a football field. About 10 times bigger is how big the, the meteor, the crater, will end up being for that. Yeah, could be really bad if it hit a city too, couldn't it? Uh -huh. You know, if you, if you hit, hit Harrisburg, that would, you know, a kilometer's worth of Harrisburg, that would just be the crater. Give me one second. A kilometer's worth of the, is just the crater. That doesn't count the impact and all the devastation that would occur around it. That's just the leftover crater. You know, it would have not, you know, if you were living out here, oh, I'm safe. Now, you know, if that happens right there, you know, it's not going to wipe out that. It's going to wipe out a whole area around it. So yeah, a good size, a good size one, something a kilometer of size could easily wipe out a city. Here and then there. It was about, the, the meteor itself was probably about a hundred, but about a tenth of the size of that. A kilometer was the size of the impact. That's what the crater that's left over, the thing that probably hit it was probably about a hundred meters across, which would be about a hundred yards, about a football field. Okay. So, pretty, yeah. Are there any documented instances of a crater hitting a city or any kind of civilized I don't. I don't know of. I don't know of any. I know. P, I know. There's been documented of like people having been hit. I thought. I remember seeing something like that. The person being hit by a small meteor. Yeah. I mean, obviously, a large one hits you. It's, you may as well forget it. But something small could. You know, How this, could that be? Like, <laughs> you just get hit on the head. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, th I remember. I don't. I don't know the details of it. I'd have to go look it back up again. But I have. I seem to remember hearing that. You know, the odds are. You know, every year that some uh, building gets hit every year, you know, or something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers. I remember looking at the statistics. But most of those don't even do any damage or do minor damage. You know, it's not a big, we're not talking about something this size. You're talking about things, you know, that end up coming down this big. Well, they can still cause damage, but even when something that big comes through the atmosphere, it gets slowed down so much. By the time it's getting down here, it's not coming as fast as you would think. You know, you think of these meteor come roaring in and smashing in at, you know, thousands of miles an hour. Well, in something here, it's almost, you know, I want to say just drifting down, but it's coming down a lot slower than you would think. Question, ma'am? Can you predict when a meteor that size would hit? You can predict statistically, but with no accuracy, okay. if you know what I mean. I can predict statistically that you know, every, every 3,000 years we should have a meteor you know, that size hit, a, hit the Earth somewhere, or this size, or a kilometer. You, know, you can predict that. But that's only statistically. Over many millions of years, it averages out. You could get three in a row. You could go 100,000 years without one. So there's no way to really get a good accurate prediction because we don't know the orbits of most of the comets. Or the meteors, I should say. All right, we're going to go back. Go back to the formation of the solar system now. So this is sort of our current theory as to how the solar system might have formed. There's been a couple different, there's been different theories over time as to how the solar system might have formed. This is sort of the, mo the modern one. 
And what it is is that there would have been some cloud of gas and dust in space that would have contracted and starts to spin. It probably was spinning very, very slowly here, almost negligibly. You could barely notice it. But when it starts to contract, for some reason, and we'll talk about that with stars, you know, why does it start to contract? Usually it takes some event to occur to make it want to contract. It's just happy there. You know, it's a nice big cloud. There's no reason for it to start collapsing. Particles are moving every which way. It doesn't want to just collapse. But maybe, and one of the things for our solar system is suggested, is that maybe there was a supernova that occurred relatively close. A star blew up and sent a shock wave that sort of started it collapsing. Once it starts to collapse, that's when gravity kicks in. Once it really starts to collapse and forms something at the center, forms a tiny, what we call a protostar, not a star yet, but starting to condense a lot of matter towards the center, it'll start to speed, it'll, start to, it'll speed the collapse, and it'll start to spin faster and faster and faster. So it's probably spinning very, very slowly, taking you know, thousands, millions of years to spin once. As you contract something down, it spins faster and faster, right? Seen that with the ice skaters? You know, they spin around, they've got their arms out, they pull them in, and they start spinning a lot faster. The same thing happens with the gas cloud. If you bring all the material to the center, it's going to spin a lot faster than it was before. So you actually increase the amount of rotation of that central star that's in the process of forming by the contraction, by bringing all that material in, so just like that ice skater bringing their arms in, you're bringing all the material in close to the center and it's going to spin a lot faster. It's what we call conservation of angular momentum. You have to keep the amount of mass spinning at a certain, at a certain rate. So in order to bring everything closer, the way you balance it is by spinning faster and faster. So this is the basics that we think of as our, of the origin of our solar system. And then, once we get in there, then we have condensation. So, we start to cool. You have your nebula. It's starting to flatten. This is the initial. It's already initially contracted. It's flattened down closer to a disk. And it started to form kind of separated. You've got hotter regions here. You've got cooler regions out here. So what do you form? When you're real close to the star, you would think that you're going to form Things that condense very well in heat, right? Things that stand up to the heat, rocks, you know, denser metals, things that stand up to the heat you would form. That's why we understand our terrestrial planets as forming closer to the sun. Because very close to it, they would have been too hot. You wouldn't have been able to form things like ices and that would have been would not have been able to form. They would have been constantly evaporated and destroyed by the sun. So they would have been all pushed out into the outer solar system. You'd get icier bodies out further. And then slowly over time, over millions of years, they'd start to gather together. And you'd form larger chunks, larger planetesimals gathering together. As they get larger and larger, eventually things that got as large as like Jupiter or Saturn would be able to have strong enough gravity to pull material in and start to clean out the area around them. And they'd slowly clean it out. You see how you go from a very dense area to less, to even less particles. And as they'd keep colliding together, eventually they'd stick together and you'd form what we think of as the planets. Now that's a, it's, it's, a, it's a good theory. It's worked always worked very well with our one solar system we knew about for many, many years. You know, for a long time we knew about one solar system in the, in the galaxy. There was one. It was the one around the sun. Well, now we know of others. And interestingly enough, what we're finding doesn't fit with what we're 
seeing here. You know, it makes sense though, right? You'd think you'd form rocks closer to the planet and you'd form the bigger gassy planets further away. But they are now finding planets orbiting very, very close to a stars that are, you know, Jupiter size. That would be Jupiter sized planets. So it's something that they, astronomers are going to have to rethink how planets, maybe how the idea of how planets form. Maybe our solar system is, is different or maybe there's other, other things that we never thought of that could occur. I mean, it makes perfect sense, but it doesn't fit all the observations that we're making right now, that we're finding all of these, all these planets that are Jupiter size, so are going to be big and gaseous, but happen to be very, very close to another star. Now, here's some examples. We finish up chapter four here. Beta Pictoris is one of the older, one of the older ones. No, no, no planets seen there. Here's the size of our solar system to scale. But when you look at it, it actually has a large disk of warm material. So something you can see in the x-ray. So there's a disk of material around this that may be something that's an example of forming stars. Forming stars, forming planets right now. So there's, this is one example, Beta Pictoris, that it has a disk of material around it. No planets, but the, material, the stuff that could be making up planets. So that's one example of something that we could see you know, one of the early examples of maybe another solar system, but not really an example of we could confirm for sure that this was another, we could confirm that there were other planets there, just that, oh, maybe this is where planets are forming. How can we actually detect planets? Well, we've got a couple ways. I'm going to show one, oh, sorry. Remember which ones I put in here. Here's the temperature. This is what I gave you the last time. This is where I said what you should form. Then I'll go back and do the other planets. I should have switched those two. The temperatures. What this is, is the condi- what we call a condensation sequence. Metals have a very high melting point. It means they don't melt very easily. You can have them up there so you can actually form them very, very close to the sun. So something like Mercury, Venus, Earth should have a large proportion of metals. When you get further away towards where the Earth is, you start to get things more like rocky materializing out that are actually condensing out where the temperature is low enough. And as the temperature gets cooler and cooler, you can get waters and ammonia and methane ices. So you can actually get the ices when you get much further out. Now we do have some, yes, we have water on the Earth, but a very small amount. There's not that much water on the Earth. Seems like there's a lot, right? The ocean, what all those oceans? The oceans are only the very skin of the whole Earth. When you look at what's below them, it's not, the ocean doesn't go all the way down to the core. It only covers, you know, those couple, that mile or, you know, little surface. You've got thousands of miles that go below that that's all rock and metal. So really the earth is primarily made up of metal and rock and we've got this little bit of other stuff on the surface. And it's not what we think of because we're used to just, we're, we're confined to the surface of the earth. We can't go deep inside. You know, we know it's all water. It's three quarters water. But it's only that very thin surface that is actually water. So this is sort of, that, again, that's that condensation sequence I was mentioning before. It makes sense to us logically. It says that rocks and metals should form closer to the star. Ices should form further away. Terrestrial planets should form close to the star. Jovian planets should form further away. But we're not seeing that with some of the observations we're getting now. Here's how we see them. Okay, here's how we see some of them. One way to look at it is by looking at the orbit of the star. When you have an object like Jupiter orbiting around our sun, they're both pulling on each other through gravity. So even if you can't see one of them, 
you can see the wobble it creates in its orbit as Jupiter orbits around the Sun. Sometimes it's pulling the Sun this way a little bit. Sometimes it's on the other side, it's pulling the Sun this way a little bit. And you'll see that in its motion that you'll actually cause the star to move in one direction on one part of the orbit and in the other direction in the other part of the orbit. You'll see it slowly, you can almost map out that orbit just by looking at the star that you can see. Now this top example is a very simple one where you just have, for example, one star, one planet. You'd pull it in one direction, then you'd pull it in the other direction. That's a simple method. That's easy if you can see just one. More likely you see something like this where you might have multiple planets. So you'll have multiple planets pulling. So sometimes three of the planets or all the planets are pulling in one direction. Other times, you know, some are pulling each way and it balances out. So you get a very complicated pattern. But with computer observations you can go and decipher this and then say, well we could explain that by saying, you know, maybe there's two or three planets that are orbiting, you know, one, two, three, that explain orbiting around that star that explain the motions we see. And the one is in Pegasus, this is in Andromeda, is another one. And let me see, I think, yeah. The other one we use, I'm not going to get onto the Earth and Moon, but the other one that we use is actually, the, there's a satellite in space now called the Kepler satellite that is observing stars, and it looks for planets by looking for eclipses. So when you have a star, if you're looking at the orbit's edge on, you might have a planet that passes right in front of that star and makes it look, blocks out a little bit of the star's light. Makes it look a little bit fainter. So you might get things where the star had a big had a dip in how bright it was as that star passed in front of it. You're not totally eclipsing it like you do on the Earth with the Moon, but you can actually see these observations. And you, when you see them occur, you know, here and then two weeks later and two weeks later and two weeks later, you can tell that there's a planet passing in front or multiple planets. And we've actually been able to discover a number of planetary systems by this method. So this satellite has now has, I think we're up to like 700 and some. There's an exoplanet app for like the iPhones and that that you can get that it updates every time a new one's discovered. I think there's like 700 and some now that are that are known. So we actually know of 700 planets outside of our solar system now. They're getting much more common. We did not know about the most of them a long time ago. We knew about things like Beta Pictoris and ideas that they might form, but really didn't have these numbers. So we're actually being able to study statistics on solar systems now by being able to see a lot more of them. Now what we'll come back to next time is chapter, if we finish chapter 4. So that was your entire breeze through chapter 4. So when you look at the textbook, just look for the sections I highlighted. I'm not going to test you on the rest. We'll go even quicker through chapter 5 because the Earth and Moon, I just do a little bit on the Moon. And then we'll spend the rest of the time on the outer, on the outer planets. And we'll get through a big chunk of that on Thursday and then we'll probably finish it up on, on Tuesday. Questions? Questions? Okay. I will see you on Thursday.